Welcome to another episode of Nutrition and Obesity in the News. This is, I think, the third monthly segment of Obesity and Nutrition in the News. And I brought this to you, as mentioned before, as a evidence-based and no-nonsense way to transmit some of the information out there in terms of food, lifestyle, weight loss, and related topics. We know that there's a lot of sensationalism out there when it comes to these areas of health and wellness. And as a obesity medicine specialist and an internist, I'm here to cut through the nonsense and the noise. So today I wanted to start with a interesting guideline that was put out earlier this month by the USPSTF, the United States Preventative Services Task Force. Now, this is a task force of national medical experts that are responsible for developing our preventive care guidelines. So they are the ones who tell us what the recommendations for vaccinations, for example. They are also the panel that sets forth recommendations for guidelines on cancer screening and screening of chronic medical conditions. And so they are a panel of experts that come together and provide a consensus guidelines based on the data and the literature. And they came out with stunning guidelines this month, which said that all individuals age eight and over should be screened annually for anxiety. So this includes not only us adults, but also our children age eight and greater. And this is pretty staggering. Again, I don't know that we've had guidelines for anxiety like this in the past. We certainly have not had guidelines that have looked at anxiety or made recommendations for anxiety screening in our children. So this is really significant. And why is it relevant to obesity and nutrition? It's very relevant. I have discussed this many times on our podcast the anatomy and physiology behind emotional eating, how and why emotional or difficult emotions and stress result in excessive food consumption. It is a matter of our hormones, among other things. But literally, as I've mentioned before, our hunger hormones surge when we experience stress and difficult emotions and make it more likely for us to eat highly palatable, meaning really yummy foods. It's not veggies, snap peas that we're hungry for when we're stressed out. And that is a function of our biology. We also know that food, of course, palatable food like high fat, high sugar, high salt foods, increase the release of dopamine in the brain, which is a feel good hormone. So at least in the short term, we feel good when we consume palatable foods. Of course, that's transient, it's short term, it's short lived, which is why we keep going back for more and more. So this recommendation on anxiety is very relevant to what we talk about on this podcast, which is mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being, but also how it relates to diet and weight. So why, why these guidelines now? First of all, we know that anxiety affects one in five children. I should specify to say that one in five children have anxiety disorder as a diagnosis. 
And that was before the pandemic. Statistics also show that one in three children have sufficient anxiety to affect their quality of life and their daily activities, even if they don't have the diagnosis. So our children are being affected. And again, this was before the pandemic, before we experienced this collective trauma in mass. And we know that 70% of parents reported that their children's mental health suffered during the pandemic. So those numbers are only expected to increase. In terms of adults, we know that a significant number of adults experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression, and that jumped during the pandemic. It was already, you know, the numbers were already skyrocketing pre-pandemic. But from August 2020 to February 2021, that number increased in adults from 36% to almost 42%. So 42% of adults report experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression. The WHO reports that anxiety increased globally 25% or by 25% during the first year during the first year of the pandemic. So again, if you are experiencing more anxiety than you did prior to the pandemic, and if you were experiencing anxiety back then, you are not alone. This is not only a national epidemic, but a global pandemic. And so as a result of this, the this task force, the USPSTF, has recommended that all children age eight and over, including all adults, get screened every year during their annual visits. So don't be surprised if this is a conversation that your physician brings up with you. Uh, you may fill out uh, some additional questionnaires at your annual visit in order to give your physician more information in this regard. And be prepared for this. I think this is really such an important and useful step towards improving the emotional and mental well-being of our country. And the fact that these guidelines have been put forth and are prompting physicians to have these conversations, it should also prompt you to have these conversations with your physician, to feel comfortable in initiating the conversation and responding to inquiries from your doctor and the questionnaires that you may be given in a really honest way, because we can't know how, where to help each other if we don't have the information, if we don't have awareness. This is a really important step. Of course, it comes on the heels of data that is disturbing. It's disturbing to know that so many of us, including our children, are being affected by mood disorders and by depression and anxiety, but knowing that now we have guidelines to to be proactive and to intervene is really good news. So keep your eyes open for that. Keep your eyes open for your children as well. Next in the news, I want to talk to you about sleep. Let's talk about sleep in our adolescence. So again, I mentioned on a prior podcast that excess weight increased significantly in our adolescence during the pandemic. Of course, it increased across the board. 42% of Americans reported unintended weight gain in the first months of the pandemic. Subsequent studies 
pin that number closer to 50%. And of course, our children were affected as well. We had the highest increase in obesity in our children and our adolescents during this two to three year time. As always, this is not about an expert telling you, you know, prompting fear. This is not about the nocebo effect and what we can't do. This podcast is all about empowering you and what we can do. And this study helps us address that. So study that came out last week showed once again, that insufficient sleep in teenagers is associated with overweight and obesity. We talked about hormones that regulate our appetite and our hunger and how studies have shown that even two nights of sleep deprivation will increase our hunger hormones and our desire for highly palatable foods. And we see that in our adults and we see that in our children. We also know that sleep disorder and just poor sleep and chronic sleep deprivation affects almost a third of Americans. For some of us, this is an organic problem, meaning we can't help it. We're insomniacs. But for many of us, there are steps that we can take to help improve our sleep and to promote sleep hygiene. If you want a rundown, please go back to the Health Bite podcast and look at one of the several episodes I've recorded, either solo casts or with experts in this field talking about sleep, sleep hygiene, and what we can do to manage insomnia. But Insufficient sleep we know can result in various metabolic complications, including insulin resistance, diabetes, elevated blood pressure, abnormal blood lipids and cholesterol, as well as obesity. The guidelines suggest that our adolescents should sleep anywhere from eight to 10 hours per night. I know my kids are not getting that. I'm not sure about you. In this study that looked at almost 1,300 adolescents, the average age was 12 years old. They measured sleep for seven days with a wearable activity tracker. And they showed that on average, only 34% of participants slept at least eight hours a night. So one third of participants got the minimum requirement for sleep for adolescents age 12. For individuals age 14 to 16, that number dropped to 23 and 19% respectively. So that means only one in five of our 16-year-olds are getting the minimum eight hours of sleep a night that is recommended. That is staggering, particularly when we show that sleep deprivation is associated with so many health conditions and metabolic complications, including obesity. When they looked at the relationship between sleep and obesity in these children, they showed that uh, as compared with the optimal sleepers, meaning those kids that were getting eight hours of sleep or greater, Overweight and obesity was much more likely in the short sleepers, 21% more likely in 12-year-olds, and 72% more likely in our 14-year-olds. So 14-year-olds who are getting suboptimal sleep are 72% 
more likely to be overweight and obese. That's like the statistics are really not in our favor. It's almost a shoe in that if our children are getting suboptimal sleep, if they're in that age range of 14 or greater, then they are highly likely to then go on to develop overweight and obesity. In addition to that, they showed that short sleepers had an average or a higher average metabolic syndrome score. So metabolic syndrome is a constellation of symptoms that includes enlarged waist circumference. We know that belly fat is more harmful than subcutaneous fat or the fat that's found kind of in our arms and our legs, that visceral fat affects the heart. Uh, Metabolic syndrome therefore includes elevated waist circumference, which is the measure of visceral fat, blood pressure, abnormal blood sugar, prediabetes, and or diabetes and dyslipidemia or abnormal uh, blood lipids or fats, including cholesterol and short sleepers had a higher average metabolic syndrome score at age 12 and 14 compared with optimal sleepers. So this information for me, I'm going to take this back to my kids. I'm nagging at them all the time that they need to get more sleep and they need to prioritize their sleep. I'm going to ask you to do the same. So when we talk about overweight and obesity in our children, there so much of it is focused around restriction, what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat. And that is fraught with its own problems. This is a totally different take. This is about what they should be doing for their own health and self-care. And it's just get more sleep. There's nothing restrictive about that. It's, It's just more delicious rest. So for those of you who have children out there, this is your homework. I want you to sit down at the dinner table, have a conversation with your kids about the risks of poor sleep and really let's empower them and inspire them to make their sleep a priority. Okay. Next up, the American Gastroenterology Association put out new guidelines this month that for the first time strongly recommended the use of anti-obesity, also known as weight loss drugs for adults who have not been able to successfully lose weight through lifestyle changes alone. The last two podcasts dedicated to obesity and nutrition in the news has talked extensively about the newer class of medications the newer class of anti-obesity medications that have been approved. If you want more information on the ins and outs of that, go back and listen to these uh, prior podcasts because I talk about what these medications are, how they're administered, physiologically what they're doing to the body. And as you know, I am in favor of these medications. As an obesity medicine specialist, I believe in using all the tools at our disposal to help people achieve a healthy weight and therefore health in general. And I'm so happy to see that professional societies are following suit and are releasing recommendations that are strongly recommending for the first time use of these medications. You know, there's a lot of bias in terms of obesity and obesity management. We don't shame diabetics for using injectable drugs to get their blood sugar under control, but we shame individuals with obesity for using medications to get their weight under control. And people shame themselves 
I can't tell you how many patients walk into the office and say, no, 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 I should be able to do this on my own. And I always question if there's a Tylenol on the table or an aspirin and you have a headache, do you should yourself to having uh, to not having a headache anymore and not use the tools? I can totally respect people who are uh, opposed in general to using pharmacotherapy. They want to go the lifestyle route in general. They don't want to use prescription drugs. I can respect that. What I don't tolerate though, is the shooting all of ourselves because that is bias wrapped in shame. If there are medications out there that can help you lose weight and you have tried to do it quote on your own, then hook up with a obesity medicine specialist, a physician like myself who has been trained to manage people and manage their excess weight and at least talk about what these options are. So right now, these medications are recommended in individuals who have, quote, obesity. Now, obesity is a term that's thrown around in the public. Nobody likes the way it sounds but it is defined as an individual who has a BMI or a body mass index of 30 or greater. And again, I know there's, there are limitations to the BMI, but as of now, this is how we measure an individual's excess weight in the office setting. And so if your BMI or weight to height ratio is 30 or greater, then you are a candidate for these medications. If you don't know what your BMI is, you can look it up online, look up a BMI chart. The CDC has a BMI calculator and a BMI chart where you can plug in your height and your weight and it will spit out that number. Anti-obesity medication is also indicated for individuals who have a BMI of 25 to 29.9 which is the quote, overweight category of obesity, and also has a comorbidity. Now a comorbidity is a medical condition that is associated with or a function of excess weight. So when weight goes up, our likelihood for certain medical conditions goes up as well. Diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, GERD or reflux, obstructive sleep apnea, joint pain, degenerative joint disease. There are multiple comorbidities that are related to excess weight. And so if you fall in the quote, overweight category as defined by your body mass index and have a comorbidity, then that also makes you a candidate for weight loss drugs. Of course, you know, insurance approval is sometimes another issue but these are conversations to be had with your physician. So kudos to the AGA for putting out these guidelines. I'm fully in support and in favor of it. Okay. And finally, this is just in um, really interesting data done in animals. So these are my studies, but remember that what's initially done in animals is then extrapolated in adults and makes the case for doing these studies in adults. So animal studies are important. And this one is particularly interesting. I am so fascinated by the emotional, spiritual component of 
eating behavior and the drive to excess weight and obesity. And this particular study looked at the effect of eating high fat, high sugary foods on the amygdala. Now the amygdala is a part of the brain that is involved in emotional regulation. Um, and it, it's a part of the brain that we can impact in many different ways in an epigenetic way. So, uh, just a little, um, neurobiology 101 epigenetics is basically the fact that we can change, we can change our genes based on our behaviors. So we have fixed genes like, you know, my cousin's blue eyes, they are fixed, it came from the grandfather to the mother to the the child. These are fixed genes. But then we have the opportunity to turn on and off certain genes, including the code for certain diseases, including obesity. We also have a way to encode for the our behaviors. So whether or not we like certain foods, whether or not we like pal- palatable foods can actually be encoded in an epigenetic way. It's all very fascinating. But before I geek out on this, because I could, I'm going to reel myself back in and talk to you about the study that showed that this area of the amygdala, which is involved in emotional regulation, actually can drive the desire for high fat, high sugar foods based on the use of these foods to soothe. So the study showed that when rats were fed high fat chow, so basically their their food or their chow is mixed with a lot of fat, as compared to normal chow, which is consider a low fat diet, for example, the mice that had the higher fat chow were more likely to affect or encode in the amygdala, the part of the brain that's involved in emotional regulation, the desire to then seek that kind of food. So does that make sense? Eating high fat foods for emotional regulation then promotes the desire to have those foods in the future. This really tables really nicely with my podcast last episode and the episode prior on why we shouldn't soothe with food. Because when we soothe with food, we train ourselves, mind and body, to use food to soothe. Now, that's not to say that we should vilify these foods. That's not to say that you should never have a French fry or an ice cream cone. But the purpose, the intention is important because if we are using food for the purpose of soothing difficult emotions and for emotional regulation, yes, in the short term, we do achieve emotional regulation and we see those neurons in the amygdala, those brain cells being activated. But then we also are encoding that in the brain so that when stressors arise, at other times, our brains go to that pathway that has been created is to go towards food and high fat and high sugar food at that. So it really speaks to the addictive potential of food as it relates to how we are using it. 
and the purpose with which we eat. So I think this is very early information. Again, it's in it's early data in animal studies, but I think this is going to lead to some important information in adults is going to add to that already literature, uh, already created base of literature that suggests that food and emotional regulation are very much intertwined. We know this as humans because all of us have at some point or other soothed with food. Others of us restrict or lack appetite when we're, we are stressed. Regardless, it shows that there is a relationship between stress, difficult emotions, and food. And as we understand a little bit more the neurobiology behind it, I think it's going to give us more information on how we can manage ourselves and how we can learn to regulate our emotions without food. So I hope this was helpful and informative. It certainly is for me to review the news in this area. I find it all um, fascinating and really, again, empowering. So please use this information as a way to level up yourself. What is one thing that you've heard here that was meaningful and how can you use that to empower yourself and your children, given the initial, that first news story we talked about. So glad to be with you this week. I'm going to ask you all uh, to do something. If you are not on the newsletter, please head over to dradrianudim.com backslash newsletter. Get your name on that newsletter. It comes out once a week. It's short. It's sweet. I don't spam you. I keep it evidence-based and hopefully informative, inspiring, and empowering. But I want you all to get on because my TED Talk is happening November 13th in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I could really use your support. I am really excited about this talk. I think it's information that needs to be heard right now. We're in a place where we are so open to the message that I hope to share with you. And I'm asking you to help me share that message. So please head on over to dradrianudim.com backslash newsletter, sign up for the newsletter so that we can give you the details of the talk, including the link when it is made available so that you can share the heck out of it. And if you want to go onto the website right now, and shoot me an email. I get every one of those emails myself to my personal email account. So if you want to go over, send me a message, let me know what you thought about today's episode. You want to send me some love and some good luck. I could take it all. I could take all that you can offer. Send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week. And I look forward to seeing you here again next week on Health Bite. Until then, bye now.